Well, good morning, everyone, or I should say good afternoon. It's good to see all of you. Grateful to be here. Thank you, Mr. Ronnie Quails, for having me. I consider it a great privilege and honor uh, to be invited here um, to speak. It's always a great privilege anytime uh, you get invited to come and participate in a conference such as this in the topic of really, um, you know, being led by the the Spirit of God. So if you turn your Bibles with me today, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, please. Second Timothy chapter 4. Which reads, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let's pray. Father, I come before you this morning. I come to the throne of grace, to the precious and holy righteous blood of your Son and my Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, I'd ask that you would grant me and empower me by your Spirit the ability to speak. Lord, open the hearts of your people today that they can receive not something from me, but something from you. Be exalted through the proclamation of your word, Lord. It's all about you. Lord, be lifted up on high today. Lord, we need you desperately. Lord, move powerfully amongst your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This morning, I would like to deal with the subject of what I titled pulpit growth. Pulpit growth in direct opposition to the obsessed view that we see in almost every mainstream church in America, which goes by the title, Church Growth. One side is all about growing numerically at the expense of truth, and the other is about growing spiritually at the denial of the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, it is of the world. I believe one of the major problems that we face today, especially with the church in America, is our view of the ministry of the pulpit. This is a true statement. How we view the pulpit will be in direct correlation to how we view the word of God. And how we view the word of God will not only affect the one preaching, but even worse, the health of the church. 
You could trace every great move of God, whether that be revival, reformation, restoration. In any society, it can be traced back to the pulpit. Same goes for a degenerate society. When gross darkness begins to cover the land, it can always be traced back to the pulpit. We always talk about evangelizing the darkest regions of our country and missions around the world. But we never consider that the darkest regions, at least in this country, is the American pulpit. First Peter chapter 4.17 says, For the time has come for judgment to begin in the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Nothing has brought about more devastation in this country than sloppy preachers who inevitably have sloppy pulpits and produce sloppy Christians. Today we have become obsessed with church growth, popularity, prestige, fame, and a fat bank account. Opposed to the Puritan biblical view of the pulpit pulpit growth, which produces the sanctifying realities of godliness, obedience, holiness, and true biblical worship at its purest form. As Pastor Steve Lawson puts it, God will honor the preaching that honors Christ, but abandon the pulpit that abandons him. Obviously, we all know that a growing church is not a bad thing, nor is it unbiblical. It's seen in Scripture. It's a beautiful thing to see Christ's church grow numerically within the context of the local body. But this is not what I'm addressing this morning. What I'm addressing today is the unhealthy fixation on numbers. And the many pragmatic methods used to get there. And how this behavior has literally shipwrecked the church in America. Devastation. We have spent millions in our accommodations to please the public, while at the same time producing man-pleasing, man-centered, man-baby preachers who are not only offended by God's word, but who have actually offended a holy God. These entrepreneurial pulpiteers have all but destroyed biblical Christianity in this country. Church growth tactics and methods are geared towards the abandonment of truth rather than the adherence to it. But rather, its appeal is to sinful flesh and the unregenerate heart of man, the pleasure-seeking, self-absorbed individual that needs to be stimulated by the world in order to remain in his seat and not exit the building. Paul Washer once said, This country is not gospel-hardened. It is gospel-ignorant because most of its preachers are. In an article written by Martin Murphy titled The Church Growth Movement, he writes, The advocates of the church growth movement have agendas that are incongruous with what the Puritans called the regulative principle and what we call a reformed worldview and life view. If the word church was removed, it would appear that it was no more than a progress report of an entrepreneurial enterprise. The goal is success. And success is seen in numbers. 
The watershed effect finds its way to pastors who are constantly challenged by sessions and congregations to grow, grow, grow. The pastor sees the glitter and the gold. He needs an increase in salary, so why not employ these church growth movement methods? He goes on to write, No Christian can be opposed to church growth, but all Christians must be opposed to church growth methodology that is not keeping with the Word of God. According to Oz Guinness in his book, Dining with the Devil, the megachurch movement flirts with modernity, his research showed that the modern megachurches have been built on the philosophical and structural pattern of America's recent shopping malls, which in turn have long been described as cathedrals of consumption. One-stop shopping is a theme common to all the megachurches. The biggest offer not only spiritual attractions, but such features as movie theaters, weight rooms, saunas, roller rinks, and racquetball courts. Once a growing church reaches the critical mass of 1,000, the sky's the limit for its financial and organizational potential for further growth through a myriad of dazzling modern insights and technologies. The modern megachurches are a prominent new feature of the church growth movement. They go hand in hand. The fixation on church growth and success was literally intoxicating to the new business model pastor. Pragmatism was key and truth was out. The larger your church was, the larger you were. This was now the new age of the Christian church. Bigger meant better, numbers meant success, and the size and scale of your church is determined how God's favor was distributed. The small church was a thing of the past. Now the competition was on. Sounds like Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, when it says, when they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to heaven so that we may make a name for ourselves. I believe the church growth movement has done more damage to today's church than what even Spurgeon dealt with during the downgrade. In his day, derelict pastors would make it very clear what side they were on. Today, everything is smeared together. And all we are left with is a blurry picture of the church. Worldly congregations. And it all boils down to one thing. The pulpit. This certainly wasn't the Apostle Paul's agenda. By any means. Actually, it's exactly the opposite. We see here Paul giving some pretty serious instructions to his protege, Timothy, as he prepares him to be faithful in preaching the gospel and in the whole work of the ministry. Paul recognized that his earthly life was likely coming to an end. And the book of 2 Timothy is essentially Paul's last words. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 7-8, through 8, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And this is no simple task. As a matter of fact, Paul does not waste any time beating around the bush. He states his mission clearly. Paul actually charges Timothy before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is no bounce house education, but an admonition to be ready. Where many, if most fail, prepare yourself. This is no program, playground, or playpen. 
but leadership that demands authority, precision, and the most important thing, gospel's power. It's not for the faint-hearted. This is the master's call. Preach the word. Richard Baxter said, It is no small matter to stand up in the face of a congregation and deliver a message of salvation or damnation as from the living God in the name of our Redeemer. The Puritans believe that the pulpit is the most dreadful place on the earth. I sat there today as we were worshiping and uh, watching Brother Randy preaching, and I just sat there and I was just trembling. I don't know if it was just nerves or just this reality that what's going to take place as I get behind this pulpit, what an awesome opportunity this is, but the accountability is extreme. We have to get to the, to the place once again where the pulpit takes its proper authority. The pulpit leads nations. It all starts with the pulpit. We don't believe that today. We don't believe that today in this country. We don't believe the significance and the authority of the pulpit anymore. It's a disgrace. And this is why it's so important and imperative that we get back to the pulpit and what it truly means to deliver God's word behind the pulpit and the cost of compromise and turning it into a jest and a circus and a dog and pony show. And because of our attitude towards this office and this position and this preaching, our country is in shambles. We can look out and say, look at it, it's the LGBTQ movement. It's, it's abortion. It's this. It's that. It's Islam. It's Mormonism. It's all this. No, it's not. We're in the condition in this country because we've failed behind the pulpit. We compromise. We've sold out. It's all about being a comedian and being funny and offering people stuff that appeals to their flesh, opposed to preaching the pure word of God. Knowing full well this is a function of God's word and the function of the preacher and the function of the pulpit is for the glory of God. The Puritans believe through the preaching of his word literally cleanse the people. The pulpit is the place where the voice of God is heard. The word of God is audibly expressed and expounded by careful and responsible exegesis to God's chosen people. Charles Spurgeon, after each sermon was finished, would immediately turn around and kneel upon the chair behind him in earnest pleading to God that God would forgive him for doing such a feeble and shoddy job in preaching. He wasn't gloating around, trying to play the fame game, get attention, get everybody to give him a round of applause so he can get his, his videos up on YouTube or wherever else and try to be a star. He was so moved by the preaching of the word and the awesome responsibility that he undertook that literally brought him to his knees. But this is the kind of preaching and kind of attitude that brings reformation to a country, that burns out the heresy, that chases out the wolves, that confronts false doctrine. This is where it takes place here. Biblical apologetics start here. Do you realize one of the greatest evangelistic endeavors you could ever do is plant a church? 
See, we don't look at it like that anymore. We think evangelism is what we do on Saturday nights from 7 to 10. Or giving people tracts. It's a wonderful thing to do. We should all be doing that. But the reality is, is when we plant a biblical church can be one of the most evangelistic methodologies in Scripture. When you install a biblical church into this land, the ripple effect of that is unbelievable. But the challenges are great. Because once it's installed, you have a responsibility to the Lord to preach the truth. Paul told Timothy, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in him the sufferings of the gospel according to what? The power of God, who has saved us and called us with what? A holy calling. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who has enlisted him as a soldier. Be diligent and present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they'll increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like a cancer. It is spread like a cancer in this country. How are we going to stop it? Starts here. Because what happens here happens out there. And what happens out there happens out there. It's a domino effect. But you, he says to Timothy, in chapter 3, verse 10 of 2 Timothy, he says, but you have carefully followed my doctrine and manner of life, purpose, faith, and long-suffering, love and perseverance. Persecutions, afflictions, what happened to me in Antioch, in Iconium, in Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and be assured of knowing from whom you have learned them. Paul says, you have learned them from me. I'm in a prison here, rotting in a prison, waiting to be martyred for the very gospel I'm telling you to preach. The very position that you're undertaking is a position that I'm giving you. Take it seriously because I'm charging you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how powerful it is. Paul says, this is what happens when you preach the truth. You're going to end up like me. But this is what you do. You obey God rather than man. Imposters is right. In our day, according to the study done by Ligonier, it says among evangelicals in the U.S., it says 31% say science disproves the Bible. 33% say gender is a choice. 38% say that Jesus is not God. 62% say that God accepts all religions. 62% say that the Holy Spirit is the force. 66% say that people are good by nature. 75% say God first created Jesus. You know where this garbage is coming from? It's coming from the pulpits. And it's spreading like a cancer. These pretenders and imposters need to be confronted. Our text reads, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
outlined in our text today, the Apostle Paul, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, gives us, I hate to use the word principles, but five points for pulpit growth. I'll actually like to use the word five sanctifying realities of the pulpit. Number one, we need to be all in. Number two, we need to preach all of God's word. Number three, we need to be ready at all times. Number four, we need to be watchful in all things. And number five, we need to endure all afflictions. Number one, we need to be all in. Paul says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this, is a, this, is this, this reality here is what Paul is trying to communicate to Timothy is that you're either all in or all out. There is no neutrality. There's no fooling around. Either take the pulpit or don't. Because the damaging effects, if you take it and you're going to compromise, is going to do severe damage. But the reality of the pulpit and preaching truth doesn't only infect the congregation. The backlash of a biblical pulpit sanctifies the preacher. It's detrimental to the growth of the pastor. In other words, Paul's saying you're accountable before God. This isn't just a career move or a promotion or a title idol, but it's war. The character of it is war. Spiritual warfare like you've never experienced before. We have the blessings of God as well. There's nothing more satisfying to the soul of the redeemed is to preach God's word in truth. Even if everybody quits your church. The call to pastoral ministry is really the same condition as the call to follow Christ. It's not half of you and half of Christ. We've got to remember that God is the almighty, not the half mighty. In Luke 9, 23, Christ says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Christian martyr, said, When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Deny yourself is not help yourself. This is how serious it is. You'll give an account... We'll give an account on how we have handled the word of God who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Compromise and accommodation. Compromise truth and accommodate the world. We need to be leery of. Francis Schaeffer writes, the famous apologist who I really love, he says, here's the great evangelical disaster. The failure of the evangelical world is to stand for truth as truth. There's only one word for this. Accommodation. Bodhi says, Suffering is common for all. However, persecution, which is a form of suffering, can be avoided. How? All you have to do is compromise. Exodus 32, 26. Moses stood at the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver before two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. 
Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. If you want to see a pure church, they need to preach from the pure word of God. And God alone transforms the church through his preached word. The Puritans knew that to the degree they saw God in Scripture clearly, to that degree their ministries would be effective. Their understanding of Scripture and how they saw God knew it would be an exact, exact parallel to how powerful their ministries would be. Steve Lawson said the spiritual life of any congregation and its growth in grace will never exceed the high watermark set by its pulpit. Basically, he says, no church will rise any higher than its pulpit. You know, we're preaching this today in the sense to pastors and preachers, but in reality, as the congregation, we must hold our leaders accountable. You do not need anybody up here just making you laugh and feeding you lies. Your soul depends on the pure Word of God. The only way you will grow and be sanctified is through the preaching of God's Word and its application. Which brings us to the second point. All of God's Word. All of God's Word. You're all in or you're all out. Next point, all of God's Word. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. We must be willing to preach the word. Paul told Timothy to preach the word, but be prepared. What has happened to me will probably happen to you. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good Work. The meaning here is this, that he should be constant in his duty, literally to stand by or to stand fast by. That is, he was to be pressing or urgent in the performance of this work. He was always to be at his post and was to embrace every opportunity of making known the gospel. He told Timothy to preach the word, all of it. Not just the feel-good verses and the safe spots, but be willing to offend and confront, to convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Acts twenty twenty seven. Paul says, For I did not shrink back from proclaiming to you, what? The whole counsel of God. Brothers and sisters, we worship God by proclaiming His Word. There's no higher level of worship than we can offer to God outside of preaching His Son. Christ is the apex and the culmination of our worship. Dr. C. Matthew McMahon in the Puritan Mind in an article writing, preaching is worship, he says this, in the act of preaching, this glorifying of Christ is the essence of the preacher's worship. 
The preacher ought to be exceedingly gripped with the sense that he is delivering Christ to the people through his preaching. If he is enthralled with a sense of this, then he is immediately conscious of the nearness of God. Preaching is a spiritual infection which ought to impregnate the hearer with the life of God in Christ. If the preacher is intimately aware that he is doing this through the unction and temperance of the spirit of truth, he is immediately aware that God is delighted in the work being dealt with. Preaching is worship. It's the vehicle that draws the minister closer to God during that hour. Jeremy Burroughs, the Puritan, wrote, For those who are most familiar with God are most potent with God. Ian Murray in his book, The Forgotten Spurgeon, writes on the condition of the church just prior to Spurgeon's arrival, he says this about the church. He says, The church was not lacking in wealth, nor in men, nor in dignity, but it was sadly lacking in unction and power. There was a general tendency to forget the difference between human learning and the truth revealed by the Spirit of God. There was no scarcity of eloquence and culture in the pulpits. But there was a marked absence of the kind of preaching that broke men's hearts. The kind of preaching that broke men's hearts. Through the power and leading of the Spirit of God. This would be termed as unction. Or God enabling you by His Spirit, adding muscularity to your preaching. Adding power to your preaching. We need people that will preach the Word again. Those that will catch on fire. It's wonderful to, to, to memorize Scripture. It's wonderful to, to exposit the Word of God. It's, all these things are wonderful. The mechanics of all these things are fantastic and biblical. But we don't want to be a form of godliness that denies the power of God in our preaching. We don't want to be mechanical robots and encyclopedias up here. Whole libraries in our heads and no fire in the heart. We need to be moved by the Spirit of God in the vehicle of preaching once again. We need to make contact with God behind the pulpit. It's worship. It's worship. And that dynamic should pour over onto the congregation. They should be able to experience that in the preaching of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 6, 19 through 20, Paul says, As for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth, what, boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. The Greek word for utterance is apophethangomai. Apophethangomai. Dr. William Downing says, It is the very best word for what we consider to be real, real, authentic, genuine preaching. Heralding the word of God through a raised, elevated, authoritative voice in a prophetic utterance. Pastor L. Martin writes, First, if and when the Holy Spirit is resting upon us as we preach... He'll often give us what I have chosen to call a heightened sense of the spiritual realities in which we are trafficking as we preach. Spurgeon writes on this. He says, The divine spirit will sometimes work upon us 
so as to bear us completely out of ourselves. Been there? George Whitfield remarked by saying, After I finished preaching in the open air, I was so overpowered by God's love that it almost took my life away. So overpowered by the love of God that it almost took my life away. Almost took my life. Which brings us to the third point. All times. Be ready at all times and all seasons. Be ready at all times. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. See, that's the dynamic of preaching because it must be consistent through the good and the bad and the ugly. The waves that change, the seasons that change. Adversity comes into your church. Wolves leak in. You've got to defend yourself. You've got to fight for the flock. It's a season. Sometimes it feels like a season in hell. But we are to be constant. We're to preach the word. We're to be ready for these things when they happen. Not to be caught off guard. Paul's making it very clear to Timothy. You must be ready for this. It's going to cost you your life. It's going to cost everything. You must understand this dynamic. You must be ready, uh, not just in the good times, Timothy. I know you're young, but you're prepared. But you must be prepared for the good times and the bad times. And the sneaky times. When things hit you and you don't expect it. Charles Spurgeon once said, God is my witness. I scarcely ever prepare... I scarcely ever prepare for my pulpit with pleasure. Study for the pulpit is to me the most irksome work in the world. True biblical pastors in a true biblical pulpit will be recognized very clearly by these realities. That the preaching of God's word will be honest, biblical, sound. And dare I say anointed. And empowered by God's spirit. So you can't talk like that in reformed churches because they all think you're being charismatic and weird. But the reality is that's not true. That's the problem with a lot of the reformed churches today. It becomes so dry and crusty. You got one end that is just nutty and out of control. And you got the other end where they just want to play spiritual show and tell with their fancy doctrines every Sunday morning. Show off their little trophies. But they're missing the element of the power of God and the preaching of God's word, which animates them, generates them, empowers them, enables them. It's demanding. Preparation for the pulpit is demanding. Paul recognized this, and he wanted Timothy to recognize this. It's demanding work. It's irksome, as Spurgeon said. It's hard. You know, I work a full-time job, but also I pastor a church. And a lot of my, what we want to people call spare time, I'm not playing games. I'm playing video games and other things. I'm spending my spare time in the irksome preparation of the pulpit. 
I don't have time to waste. And if I'm going to bring this reality to the pulpit, I must be willing to do the irksome work that it takes. And then on top of all the irksome, irksome work, you get a very ungrateful response many of the times. People don't want anything to do with you. I just spent 40 hours sweating, praying over this message. I come in to feed you the Word of God, and you're falling asleep. Are you wondering why church isn't more fun or more entertaining or more amusing? Or you quit because you got offended. It didn't go your way. The preacher said something that stunned you and awakened you, and you didn't like that feeling. It happens. It happens all the time. It's an irksome work, but it's a glorious work. And this is why you must be called into it, because you won't make it if you're not. We have a skill set. Preachers have a skill set. That's to convince and to rebuke and to exhort with all patience. Always remember that word, with all patience. Because that's the part where most of us fail. My wife can testify. She hears me talk all the time, and most of the time it's how my patience is running out. I quit every Monday. I quit every Monday. And I start over on Tuesday. My poor family. Be ready when the naysayers appear, in which they will. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They won't take it. They can't take it. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers. And this is what we see today in the American pulpit. They'll turn their ears away and not towards the truth, but instead get caught up with all the stories and fables. Bruce Bickle writes, The spirit of this age would have us believe that the avenue of preaching is no longer the means by which God will revive his church. Rather, we are to engage in and enlist in more contemporary means to accomplish what God has said he would do through the foolishness of preaching. Brings us to the fourth point. All things. Be watchful in all things. But you, he says to Timothy, be watchful. Be watchful in all things. Matthew 26, 41. Christ says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Matthew 24, 42. He says, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. There's part of watching which keeps us from falling into temptation. And then there's a kind of watching that gives an expectation that Christ is coming back. In 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, Peter says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. We're to be watchful. Man, are we ever to be watchful. We need to develop this watchfulness, especially in the work of the ministry. And shepherding a church. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and 11, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. 
William Grinnell, who penned the, fa- who penned the famous war treaties, the Christian in complete armor, was dealing with Ephesians 6, encouraged his parishioners to see the passions of their lives in the broad setting of war and transformation. He said this, The bloodiest battle that has ever been fought by men would be but sport and child's play compared to the furious endgame in prospect between the elect saints and their archenemy Satan. It is a sad meditation indeed to think how many thousands have been sent to the grave in a few late years among us by the sword of man. But far more astonishing to consider how many of those may be sent to hell by the sword of God's wrath. Friends, you are in the bloodiest, the bloodiest of battles. Isn't that true? I don't think we realize that reality. It is the spiritual nature of it is the bloodiest of all battles. This is why I think the Lord has set up the world in which we live in, that we wouldn't get comfortable. We wouldn't be in a position where we want just to lay in a bed of roses or skip through the park. He made it, he designed it in such a way that made us long for heaven, long for Christ. Second Thessalonians 3 3 says, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. Acts 20, 29 says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 4 and 5 says, The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have the divine power to demolish strongholds, which demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is a reality of what we're called to for pulpit growth. This is what we see in Scripture that not only grows your church biblically and in, in, in depth, but also grows the ministry of the pulpit as well. The healthier the pulpit, the healthier the people, the healthier the nations. Which brings me to my last point, all afflictions. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your Ministry, and that's just it. You know, he was he was. You know, this church was planted in Ephesus. Paul was telling him to take on this church, this reality of do the work of an evangelist. He's not telling him, hey, on Saturday nights go out from seven to ten. He's telling the evangelistic characteristic of this church, in essence, is what I'm telling you to do right now. People will be saved. Why would they be saved? They'd be saved here in the Word of God. Don't get me wrong. People will be added to the church. Not that we should turn our churches into crusades. That's what I'm not saying. When you've got a healthy pulpit that's evangelistic, you get people that are converted, set on fire, and go out into the world and change the world. But if you just play patty cake with everyone and playing games, that's all you're going to get. They're going to be frightened of the world. They're frightened of the world. They're frightened of the things that they see. They're frightened of the news. The media scares them to death. COVID's got them running in every which way but loose. But we have Christ as our shield. The scriptures tell us very clearly that he covers our head in the day of battle. And we're not to be afraid. Do the work of an evangelist. In the American mind, our view of evangelism is compartmentalized. And we've got to get into this reality that 
The work of the church is the most important work because Jesus Christ says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's one of the only things he puts his name on. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter, who do men say that I am? It's extremely important because it will determine the very success of the mission when I send you out. Don't go say I'm Elijah. Don't say I'm John the Baptist to the world. Don't say I'm some prophet, which I am the prophet. But the reality is, who do you say that I am? He says, you're the Christ. And this is the keystone and the premise and the foundation to end up changing the world. It's the work of the church. It's the work of the church. Nothing makes sense outside of the reality of the local church. Evangelism doesn't make sense outside of the local church. It's all in context. The ordinances, baptism, communion, church discipline, all these things are in context with the local church. We must understand the doctrine of the local church again, the pulpit, the ministry of the pulpit. We've got to get back to the authority of the local church. Back in the days of the Scottish Covenanters, they were terrified of the church. John Knox, Patrick Hamilton, George Wisher, men that stood up, Calvin. They would not allow the government to fuss with the authenticity of the church. They stood up against it, many of them at the cost of their own life. They said, no king but Christ. And that's where we need to be today. 2 Timothy 2.21, his pulpit was to be the weapon of choice, wielded in the hand of the Almighty, a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the Master's use, prepared for every good work. And we will not be useful unless we are sanctified and prepared. And this is why we need to be ready in season and out of season for the work of the pulpit. We need to be all in. We need to preach all of God's word. We need to be ready at all times. We need to be watchful in all things. And we need to endure all afflictions. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for our time this morning. Lord, I thank you for allowing me to be here. I thank you for allowing me, oh God, to proclaim your word. Lord, I pray you were honored and glorified. And I pray, Lord, with a shattered heart this morning for the pulpits in this country. As Leonard Ravenhill once said, if Jesus came back, he wouldn't cleanse the church, he'd cleanse the pulpit. Lord, I pray, Father, for godly pulpits in this nation. Church planning at its highest level. Lord, I pray for this body of believers here today in this church, that you continually use them for your glory. Continually use them, O God. May your hands be upon them in every endeavor. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.